you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. Limited indoor dining is back in L.A. County. We will check in on two restaurateurs. Plus, 2021 Oscar noms are out, and they are a whole lot more diverse than previous years. KPCC's John Horn tells us how it happened. That's all ahead on Take Two. Stick around. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Austin Cross, in for A. Martinez, who you might have heard filling in on NPR's morning edition this morning. Really killing it, too. So I get to be back with my Take Two family. All right, coming up, the Oscar nominations this year are the most diverse ever. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We'll hear why just ahead. But first, Los Angeles is opening back up. You know, a little. We are officially in that less restrictive red tier. So is a lot of California for that matter. And we wanted to know, how you feeling? Hi, this is Aya Gibson. I'm calling from Los Angeles. And I'm calling to say what I'm looking forward to the most after restrictions are lifted is just jogging outside in a park with no mask on. I have asthma, and when I wear a mask, it triggers my asthma, and I just want to breathe and jog and be in trees and grass and seeing happy children playing outside in the playground. This is Alina Berry. I'm calling from La Mirada, California, and I have twins, second graders, who are planning on going back, and our school has already has sent us the schedule that the kids will have and, and all the precautions that they have taken. And as a parent, my heart is just so crushed for those kids because there's going to be no time to play. There's going to be no ability to socialize with their classmates. They will have to sit at their desk pretty much for two and a half hours, two times a week and just study with five-minute stretch breaks where will not, they will not be able to touch anything in the classroom. Um, they will not be able to play with each other. And that's it. That's what counts as opening um, the schools back and um, doing in-person. Hey, it's Carol, and I'm from Rancho Palos Verdes. I, very first thing that I would like to do is get back to my Pilates class. I have done it on Zoom. It's just not quite as satisfying, and I want to be in with the instructor. I want to be in the studio with the students and get realigned, get back in shape. And I have had COVID. I have had, I'm a healthcare worker. I've had two vaccines, so I'm not worried about it being safe. I'm safe, so I'm ready to go. Let's do it red tier. Let's do it. Take two listeners, Carol, Elena Berry, and Aya Gibson. Always nice to hear from people. For more on our current COVID state, let's turn to Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Welcome. 
Thank you, Austin. Well, as you just heard there, doctor, in that tape, some people cannot wait to go back to their pre-pandemic routines. Although I also hear that others are a little nervous about going back to dining inside and other activities. So I actually want to start by asking you a bit of a two-parter. It's how do you feel about opening back up? And are you confident that we are in a good place for counties across the state to let people back into gyms and movie theaters? You know, I I feel the same as a lot of your listeners and that I'm excited that things are opening up. And yet at the same time, it's just so weird to even think about eating inside in a restaurant with your mask off or having friends over to the house and not masking. It's just it's just odd to think of after this past year. So it's going to be a a new normal to get used to. I think we are at a good spot um, to open things up. We've got really case rates that are falling dramatically. In Los Angeles County, the cases are 50 times less than the peak that occurred at the end of December and beginning of January. So we're, we're at a good spot in increasing immunization rates, increasing people um, are immune within our communities. So I, I think we're heading into a good place. I really agree with what you said there about it just feeling strange to be taking your mask off while eating. It almost feels like a piece of necessary clothing at this point. Mm -hmm. When I leave the house, you know, you almost feel naked. You're like, my face is cold. Then you Mm -hmm. have to go and get it back again. You know, I was listening to a conversation on our sister show, Air Talk, this morning, uh, and their doctor talked about how cases had come down a lot since January, but they also think that we've hit a plateau across the U.S., and she was kind of worried about that. So I'm wondering from you, what concerns do you maybe have that we won't dip any further or worse, that we actually might spike again? I have Italy on my mind as I ask you that, which is, again, shutting down after seeing cases climb. Well, we certainly don't have enough people in our communities immune to prevent further spread. So we don't have anything near herd immunity, for example. Mm -hmm. So we are going to stay at risk for additional surges. And then the wild card in all of this is the variants and depending how they take hold and how they affect transmission. So we know the UK variant, for example, is 50% more transmissible. And the CDC estimates that it will be the predominant strain circulating in the U.S. sometime this month. So that that could really affect things. And the other variants, the South African and Brazilian variants, may escape vaccine-induced immunity, making the vaccines work less well. So there's a lot of uncertainty going forward. But this is the most optimistic, I think, that I've, I've been since the pandemic started. There was that prediction that the variant would become the dominant strain. Are you actually seeing that play out? Because we are now in this month. Are, are you seeing that anywhere? Yeah, we are seeing it where data has been reported. I have not seen recent data reported from California, but from Florida and from some other states, we've seen that the UK variant is becoming the dominant variant. I'm really curious. The lucky thing about us getting to talk to you is we get to actually, you know, we have an inside man. You're our inside man, but we also get to ask you questions about things that are happening on the inside. Like, I'm really curious what conversations you and your fellow staff at the hospital are having Uh, about COVID-19 right now, what's top of mind, the biggest concern for you at this point? 
Well, right now we're in a good place in that we have the ICU, ICU and bed capacity, so we, we aren't under that crunch that we've had before. We've had a lot less staff out because of COVID or because of contact with um, patients with COVID or people in the community with infection because we've got such a high rate of immunization. So really the talk has been like, when can we return back to a more normal state? When can we have in-person meetings again? When can we get together for, for lunch and other morale building events? events. That's the kind of kind of conversations that we're, we're hearing at work. You know, I mean, those are the conversations we're having here, too. I mean, summer, as you know, in California, especially in Southern California, it is a darn fine time to go live your life and enjoy some things. Uh, but of course, last year, we didn't get much of that because we were in the full swing of the pandemic. So I actually want to ask you about vaccinations and how you think that we're doing in California, because I really want to know, I watched Joe Biden speak last week and he talked about the vaccines and their availability come May. Uh, Could we be on track, in your opinion, to vaccinate all adults by the end of the summer? Yeah, I think we do have that opportunity. Um, You know, we did have a rocky rollout of the vaccine program. It was brand new. We weren't sure about all these different tiers that we were having in terms of priorities. And, you know, I think we did cut it a little bit fine um, at the beginning that um, the recommendations from public health were very fine um, and made it very difficult to vaccinate large numbers of people at once. So now the recommendations are broadening, and I think that makes it easier for healthcare systems and others to vaccinate people. I think we will be having more widespread vaccination. I know here at UC Davis Medical Center, we have plenty of staff available for for vaccinating, and really it's the, the vaccine doses are the rate-limiting Um, event. So as soon as we get more doses, we just open up more vaccine opportunities. And I think we will have the opportunity for everybody who wants to be vaccinated to to get a vaccine um, in the coming months. We are talking to Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis's Children's Hospital. I want to actually keep asking you questions about vaccines. And, you know, here's, here's one that I'm sure a lot of people have, especially myself, because about a month and a half ago, uh, I was one of the unfortunate few to actually catch COVID-19. Uh, zero stars would not recommend, was not a good time for me or my wife. Um, and now there's this kind of question of there are vaccines and the vaccines are coming and I'm not in that eligible group yet to receive one. But if someone has had COVID-19 and they've recently recovered, should they still get the shot or should they wait or should they maybe go for a single dose vaccine instead because maybe they have the antibodies? Well, I'm sorry to hear that you got infected, but I'm glad that you've recovered. The the really the good news about getting infected and recovering is that you're very unlikely to get reinfected within 90 days following infection. So, yeah, so there's no rush to get vaccinated. But if you too become eligible for vaccination, then go ahead and get vaccinated because the immune response following immunization is comparable or better than natural infection. So we do believe that protection will be better following immunization than following actual infection. So we do encourage people to get vaccinated. But people who have been previously infected have an extraordinarily powerful immune response to just one dose of the vaccine and may not Mm -hmm. require two doses. We haven't figured that part out yet. Um, We don't have a blood test that tells you like what level of antibody gives you immunity. But so right now the recommendations are for, for everybody to get the recommendations 
recommended doses. But that's something that we're looking to fine tune in the coming months or years. You know, we are in such a strange time where we don't know a lot. We've learned a lot over the past year, certainly having, you know, watched and followed and produced and reported the news over the past year. We've learned a lot about COVID. But there's also so many big question marks when my wife and I were kind of in the thick of our COVID experience. One thing that we were Googling was, could we get it again? And there seemed to be very, very few instances where a person had caught it twice. So it sounds like there's potentially some hope here that, you know, just based off of that terrible experience that we had, we could be covered, but also the vaccine would work as a good backup to that, right? Right. And we know from other coronavirus infections, the routine coronaviruses, the ones that cause a common cold, they generally provide um, immunity for three to four months after infection. You can get infected twice with the same strain in the same um, cold season. So we know that reinfection may occur, but it's not very common um, and it hasn't been common with, with COVID. Well, I want to ask you about uh, two big words for us here in Southern California, also big parts of the country like uh, Florida. And those words are spring and break because spring break, it's upon us. And uh, we just heard that travel is up at the highest point it's been in a year. And anecdotally speaking, I know people who are going to various locations. One of our producers knows somebody who went to Hawaii or is planning to go to Hawaii. Is there a best practice that you would offer if somebody's planning to get on a plane, doctor? You know, the CDC is still recommending against all non-essential travel, um, so I would encourage people to try to stay closer to home. But if you do travel, certainly when you're in a public area, whether you're vaccinated or not, mask and social distance as best as you can. Remember that the vaccine does not protect 100%, so even people immunized will be susceptible to getting infected, and they may transmit to others. The rate of a transmission to others is going to be much lower than among unvaccinated individuals, but there still is, is that risk. So you're saying, especially I'm thinking for people like teachers who maybe only get a small window every year to go away and go on vacations, they shouldn't book a trip for the summer yet? They shouldn't be making that many plans that far ahead, you think? Well, I think they could book a trip for the summer because I think the travel advice might change, and a lot of the um, uh, you know a, a lot of the travel partners are having very flexible refund and rescheduling um, policies these days. So I think you could go ahead and book that, but be prepared to cancel in case things change, in case there's another surge, or in case the CDC travel advice doesn't change. But since the vaccines have been working so well, I do expect um, in the coming weeks to months that the CDC will open up recommendations. For for traveling. Well, with about a minute that we have left, doctor, right now we have three vaccines approved for use in the U.S. We've got the Johnson & Johnson, of course, the Pfizer, the Moderna. Is there any expectation that there's going to be more added to the mix? I know that we've heard some concerns over AstraZeneca, which is now kind of facing a kind of PR challenge because even if they overcome the hurdles that they have seen so far, now people have kind of heard some of the coverage about it and they might even be a little bit hesitant uh, to take it. But do you think that there are more vaccines on the horizon for us at this point? Yeah, the next one that will likely be submitted to the FDA for emergency use authorization is the Novavax vaccine, and that should be probably next month. And then the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine will probably be submitted either next month or May. And again, I, I would agree that I think it's an overreaction by those countries. The preliminary data that I've heard is the issue related to blood clots, that it's not occurring in vaccinees at a higher rate in the general population. So I, I, I do think that the WHO is on the right track to say continue 
continue to investigate, observe, but to continue to vaccinate also. I've heard talk about some possible booster shots for the vaccines that are already out because of the uh, variants that are out there. Have you heard any word on when we might actually start seeing the little boosters come along too? So, yeah, the Moderna already has a a multivalent uh, vaccine formulation that they're using that uses the old strain and also the new strains that are circulating in order to provide better immunity. So those are already in clinical studies. That is Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis's Children's Hospital. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you. Where else do you get your COVID news and Otis Redding? Only on Take Two, people. It has been quite a year with a lot of loss. I probably don't need to tell a lot of you that. But also, there's been some newfound joy in the little things that we might not have noticed in our pre-pandemic lives. I know I've definitely seen some. I have two dogs now. I went from zero to two. How did that happen? Well, as we slowly come out of the fog that quarantine has created around our lives, we want to reflect on where we've been and where we're headed. So to do that, we have partnered with USC's Center for Religious and Civic Culture and commissioned some sermons from faith leaders from around our county. First up is actually a good friend of mine, Rabbi Noah Farkas from Valley Beth Shalom in San Fernando Valley with his sermon called The Cursed Harvest. I turned to my rabbinic colleagues earlier this year and sighed. We had just completed our 23rd funeral in four weeks due to COVID, and it was all starting to feel like it was just too much. Take care of yourself, my senior rabbi, Ed Feinstein, said. We still have a long road ahead. As I walked to the car, wanting so badly to hug our congregants, who had just lost their mother, I could sense how very stricken they were. It turns out that even the indomitable N95 mask still isn't strong enough to filter out grief. I looked over the valley in which I live and thought, is this really the new normal? It's been a year since I went into quarantine. On March 6, I returned from a conference and got the message that COVID had just been traced back to the event. I locked myself away from my family and friends, not knowing that this was just the beginning. We've now celebrated every birthday in our house, every holiday, every anniversary, with drive-bys and Zoom dinners. We all are now familiar with the broken organ sound of a family singing happy birthday simultaneously together on Zoom. It's awful. What worries me most is when I see our children give air hugs to their teachers as if that is normal, or when teenagers feel that Snapchat instead of a sidewalk chat is the normal way of life. This pandemic has forced us to raise a generation that sanitizes affection and human connection. What will be the long-term effects of a society that never knows the warmth of a heartbeat against our skin or the strength of a new companion's handshake. There's an old parable in my tradition that relates to this. Once, 
there was a wise king whose wizard noticed that the harvest that year was cursed. Anyone who eats this grain will go insane, said the wizard. There is only enough grain from this year's harvest to feed one person next year. What shall we do? The king thought for a moment and found a child and said to her, You are to eat of this grain and no other. Do you understand me? And the child said, Yes. Good, said the king, for the rest of us will go mad, and we need you, my dear one, to remind us of our mania. And so it was. For the next year, the child rode around the kingdom, shouting, Friends, remember, what you are doing is not normal. It is the madness that has you. We need this child's wisdom now more than ever. We must all remind each other that the task of this moment is to remember that what we experience in the craziness of COVID is not normal and not right. God, after all, teaches the book of Genesis, created us to be together. We shall not allow the badness to seize us. And when this cursed harvest ends, we must find ways of coming back together, to hold each other's hands, to feel another's tear upon our cheek, and cast off the darkness that loneliness brings. That was Rabbi Noah Farkas of Valley Beth Shalom in San Fernando Valley in his sermon, The Cursed Harvest. You can read the text and that of several faith leaders in our community at crcc.usc.edu. There you will see a report pinned on that main title page titled Bridges Over Troubled Waters. Check it out. All right, coming up, you know, there are a lot of things that have the word red at the top of them that are usually pretty bad. You know, red alert, red wedding. Well, now L.A. County is in the red tier for reopening, which is, you know, worse than normal, but better than where we've been. Among other things, it means that restaurants can reopen with limited indoor capacity. So we wanted to check in to see how two restaurateurs are faring. That conversation is coming up in just 60 seconds. Stay with me. Sometimes I get a good feeling, yeah. Yeah. I get a feeling that I never, 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 never had before. No, no. Yeah. I just want to tell you right now that. It must be the feeling of listening to Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, of course. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. Well, as we've been talking about, Los Angeles County is officially in the red tier, which means you can again go to a movie theater or a yoga studio or sit inside at a restaurant. You know, generally stuff you never thought about before March of 2020. 
Of course, when those businesses do reopen, it will be at limited capacity. So to see how some local eateries are handling these changes, we check in with chef and restaurateur Suzanne Goyne, who runs AOC and Tavern, and Akasha Richmond, chef and owner of the Culver City Restaurant. Akasha, welcome to both of you. Of course. Suzanne, I just want to start with you. I understand that you will be opening up for indoor dining tonight at AOC, so some lucky Angelinos will maybe get to enjoy a nice hanger steak with some red wine butter, (laughs) some arugula, and crispy shallots. At least you know what I'm thinking about right now. Uh, Let me ask you, when it comes to the safety measures and the staffing, how are you preparing for indoor dining? We've done all this before. We have the new HVAC system. We have protocols for our servers. Everybody wears KN95 mask and gloves and shield, face shield. We've always been about cleanliness. It's kind of part of what great restaurants do. And then we've been doing outdoor dining uh, since it was allowed again around, I think it was mid-February. And so for us, it's really just adding in the extra, you know, seven tables of indoor to what we're already doing. So I feel lucky we have our, we have, we definitely have our groove on and you're doing a great job about keeping our staff and our and our guests really safe. I like your phrase, having your groove on. And it sounds like you've yeah. made really an incredible <laughs> amount of investment uh, to try to make sure that everybody stays safe. I mean, an HVAC, uh, N95 masks for everybody, that sounds like a lot. But I'm also curious about your other restaurant, Tavern, because it's been temporarily closed, as I understand it. Can you reopen there yet? We could reopen there with 25% occupancy. We actually were in the beginning of a construction, like a remodeling project. Mm-hmm. And so we're actually just about done with that construction. And we will probably be opening mid to late April. Well, I want to bring in Akasha Richmond of Akasha in Culver City. I heard you're not opening up just yet, Akasha. And I'm wondering why not? A couple of weeks ago, I had a, I call it a staff meltdown where One girl, her grandfather's in the hospital, so she had to fly to Florida for maybe a month, which means she has to quarantine when she gets back. And I had someone else Mm. with a death in the family have to leave town. So when you only have four servers and you lose two, you're not reopening your indoor dining. I mean, that sounds like an incredible thing. Amid everything else that you've had to go through this year, that just seems like more that's added on top. How are you feeling right now? Well, I feel really good right now. Oh, good. Because I just hired five great people that I really <laughs> like. And they worked last week and they actually were so great. So I, I feel good. I mean, I'm if it takes a couple of weeks, two, three weeks to open the diner, I'm fine. You know, with everything that's happened in the past year, this is not like a huge problem for me. Wow, that's so good to hear. And I'm sure they're very happy to have the work now, too. As far as your preparation for the restaurant, how much more preparation is needed to bring things up to where they need to be to welcome guests back? When everything shut down last March, I had cloth couches. I recovered them in a real washable vinyl that we could clean easily. I painted. You know, we did everything thinking we'd be open in two months. So that part is done. Hmm. You know, I'm ready that way. So I'm glad I did it back then. Well, I do wonder about the economic viability of opening indoors at only 25% capacity. I mean, even now that you've got your staff in place, does it make sense from a financial point of view, Akasha, to start operating again at just a small percentage of where you were? Well, I think it does, but I'm just curious how many people want to eat indoors because I see people saying, I only want to eat outside. 
Sure. I definitely think that there's a mix. I was listening earlier to Larry Mantle and he was having people call into his show. And there's certainly people who are willing to, and there's also people who, you know, they're willing, uh, they're not willing to enter yet until more people have been vaccinated. Uh, Suzanne Goyne, you are reopening. So I want to ask you, does it make financial sense for you to open at limited capacity? Well, for us, it does because we have two patios and we have a good number of seats between our two patios. So for us, it's really just a bonus. It's an, it's an, we're adding in seven tables that we didn't have before. I think we all think about things differently in terms of what financially makes sense. I think if you'd asked us two years ago, hey, how about you operate at 25% capacity? would be like, no way. We'd be, there's no way that that is financially sustainable. But I think we've definitely all changed our sort of levels of like what we can handle and what feels worth it and what doesn't. We also have PPP loans, which have been very helpful grants through this, um, you know, the restaurant relief package, which can also mm-hmm. really, I think, assist, you know, really help restaurants get back on their feet and open, even if 25% wouldn't normally make sense, you know, if you have this, these grants and this help, hopefully it does make sense. And then what people can be doing is getting ready for when it's 33% and 50%. And, you know, as things start to get better and open up more and more. Well, I do want to ask you about that relief package in just a second, but I actually wanted to circle back on a point that Akasha made. And I'm wondering, uh, is there a concern for you whether or not people are actually willing to dine outdoors? And if it maybe seems like people are a little bit reluctant to go out uh, and and eat at a restaurant again, could you see yourself maybe having to scale things back again and maybe not have uh, live indoor dining? I think there's going to be enough people who want to eat indoors. I mean, maybe I'm just wishful thinking or hopeful. I, I do think we you know, we've had, I definitely think with the weather, I mean, the last week we've been serving people, you know, sitting outside in like 48 degrees and it's windy. And I think a lot of those people, if they would give them a chance to come inside, I think they'd come inside. I think, you know, definitely younger people seem to be more comfortable with it. But I know we did definitely when, before when we had indoor and outdoor, we had a lot of people who were, would said when they made the reservation, they were only going to come if it was outdoor. But in general, I think comfort level is improving. And I think as people sense others getting vaccinated or, or they can come in with another couple who's been vaccinated, I think it's easing up. We can only hope. We're talking with Suzanne Goyne, chef at AOC in L.A., and Akasha Richmond of Akasha Restaurant in Culver City. And Akasha, I want to ask you about the Biden relief package that was signed last week. Is there much help in there for restaurants like yours? I do. The grants are great. Uh, the math really works. And it pays for rent, food, beverage, a lot of your regular expenses. So if the grant pays for that and you you have income coming in from your patios, your 25% or whatever, then it's going to work. Suzanne, we're at this point in the pandemic where we've tried reopening before just to shut things back down again. And I'm kind of curious if somewhere in the back of your mind, if there's a concern about there being another shutdown, once you reopen doors and everybody gets all excited, you know, have you thought about how that might look and what you might do then? I mean, I hate to ask the worst case scenario question, but we've kind of been in a worst case scenario year. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely run through my mind. Actually, when we first in February, when we were allowed to reopen for outdoor dining, the numbers actually were twice as high as when they shut us down, when they said we could reopen. And we actually held off a couple of weeks reopening because we weren't feeling comfortable. We weren't sure that we felt okay with bringing people back. It's funny, actually, it was one moment Carol and I were freaking out because it was, they said, oh, can, you can, we can open now, we can open now. And we, I actually finally looked at her and I said, okay, we, just because they say we can doesn't mean we have to. This time, I think we've, after having seen the numbers drop pretty dramatically and also seeing the vaccine distribution and 
you know, really ramp up. And once also restaurants, food and agriculture workers were allowed to get vaccinated, which happened March 1st. So now almost all my staff have gotten at least their first vaccine. I feel much more hopeful this time than I've felt any of the other times. Akasha, what about you and your staff? Have you been able to get your vaccines yet? Oh, yeah. Most people have gotten their first one. That makes everybody feel better, especially the servers and the bartenders in the front of the house. It's just they're around the guests more. Well, Suzanne, I was talking to you before this conversation started a little bit about how the last time we spoke, and I was actually filling in for A. Martinez on take two, you said you're kind of on the the edge of darkness. It was a very different time in this pandemic. And now we're, we've, we're at a year at this point. And yeah. I guess I want to ask to close, you know, if you have any immediate takeaways of this whole past year about, you know, maybe what's been lost, what's been gained, or if something's not been gained, at least what's been learned by you over the past year. Well, I think it's hard to think about any gains just in the face of all the loss. we we have an employee from Tavern who passed away from COVID to think of all the people or even even like a, like a cautious situation where it may not be her staff member, but it's that person's grandfather or parent. You know, it's just been horrendous. On the, up, the things that we've learned are restaurant people are very resilient and we figure stuff out and we cobble together and we did you know, the dreaded word pivot. You know, I think about, you know, like hundreds of thousands of restaurants that have closed. You know, we were able to we had some money in the bank that we blew through trying to stay open. You know, we've been around a long time, so we've kind of built, you know, we have a relationship with our bank. And I feel like if you could survive to this point, now things are good. Now we can kind of, you can survive and make it happen. But I think about all the places that didn't, weren't able to survive that year. And it's, it's really heartbreaking. I agree. It's super heartbreaking. We've had someone's uncle died, a former cook, his brother died, someone else died, server, her mother died in a nursing home. I mean, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. So we've all learned so much. And yeah, we're a really tough bunch. And the customers have been great, and really supportive. Mm-hmm. So yes, we've learned a lot, but we've lost a lot. And yes, if you survive this year, you're going to make it. But my heart goes out to all the people that didn't survive. Yeah, well, you are all certainly a tough bunch. And I thank you both so much for making the time to speak with me today and just to share where you've been and where you are right now. And I do hope that when you reopen, everybody comes and and get some of that good food. So thank you so much, Chef Akasha Richmond of Akasha Restaurant and Suzanne Goyne of AOC and Tavern. Thank you both so much for making the time. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. It feels like summer. This is officially my red tier theme song. Well, as you might know, we have a new district attorney in L.A. County, George Gascon. And recently, he has been pushing to review and reduce the sentences of prisoners who have had years added to their sentences through a feature called enhancements. It's pretty controversial, to be sure, but it just might actually help one man in particular who's 36 years into a life sentence for stealing... Just over $14. We'll hear his story when Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with me. Mm, Sunny, yesterday my heart was filled with rain. Sunny, you 
you smiled at me and really eased the pain. Oh, the dark days I've done. The rain is done, the sun is here, and you're listening to Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. Los Angeles County's new district attorney, George Gascon, has launched an ambitious series of reforms that he says are designed to combat mass incarceration and systemic racism in the criminal justice system. Now, for one thing, he's told prosecutors to no longer pursue something called enhancements. And that's basically when a lot of additional years are tacked on to someone's sentence for crimes committed while using a gun or belonging to a gang. Gascon also wants his staff to review thousands of past sentences and undo those that they determine were overly long. In the first of two stories, KPCC's Robert Garova reports on one man from South L.A. who hopes Gascon's new policy will benefit him. Reginald Wheeler grew up in what's now known as the Baldwin Village neighborhood of South L.A. He was one of 13 kids. His sister, Tracy Wheeler, remembers him as a protective older brother. He did what he needed to do to provide, you know. He, he tried to take care of everybody. Part of that included stealing to get what the family needed. Growing up, Wheeler was arrested several times for theft of things like food stamps and machine parts. He spent time at the Youth Authority and was a member of the Brim Bloods gang. Then, one day in the fall of 1983, when he was 20, Wheeler made a fateful choice. I'm near the intersection of Coliseum and Steveley in the Baldwin Village neighborhood. It was here at around 7 o'clock in the morning on November 15, 1983, that Reginald Wheeler and an accomplice approached Mark West as he walked to work. Wheeler forced West to walk about 100 feet into a nearby alley, where they robbed him of his watch and about $14 in cash. Wheeler was later arrested and put on trial. In 1985, he was convicted and sentenced to prison. 36 years later, He's still there. Anybody, even a layman that reads the facts of my case, say he couldn't be in jail all this time for this. That's Reginald Wheeler. We spoke on a call from the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. At first glance, Wheeler's crime seems like a simple robbery. But because he allegedly twisted Mark West's arm behind his back and forced him to walk those hundred feet into that alley, prosecutors added a charge of aggravated kidnapping. It wasn't like the kidnap where you have somebody in the trunk tied up in a warehouse. This was like moving off the, the street into a, a parking stall to be out of, out of view. But prosecutors saw it otherwise. Because of the aggravated kidnapping charge, Wheeler was sentenced to eight years to life in prison. Retired prosecutor Mark DeBot says, in his opinion, Wheeler probably wouldn't have gotten that long of a sentence if he went to court today. Still, he supports the prosecutor's decision to add the aggravated kidnapping charge. You file what he did, and 100 feet is definitely within definition of kidnapping. But reform advocates say Wheeler's sentence is an example of where the criminal justice system went wrong in the 80s and 90s. Elliot Curry is a professor at UC Irvine's Department of Criminology, Law, and Society. And about the time Mr. Wheeler got sentenced, you were looking at a time when whatever was driving our prosecutorial policies and our sentencing policies generally had nothing to do with crime control. Curry says this period saw what he calls a mindlessly punitive attitude, fueled in part by that era's tough-on-crime, war-on-drugs rhetoric. What you began to see happening was politicians, legislators, elected prosecutors beginning to get on the bandwagon, even if they actually knew that what they were saying made no sense. 
in terms of equal justice. Wheeler has been in prison for so long because he's been turned down for parole more than a dozen times over the past three decades for infractions like having a cell phone or marijuana. He's found an advocate and investigative journalist, Don Ray, who happened on the case about 15 years ago and started corresponding with Wheeler. It's really sad that that people who have committed murder can get off in 10 or 15 years or whatever. But Reggie, who's not wealthy and he's not white, he's among so many other people that are in there, people of color, who have just been forgotten. D.A. Gascon's directive to review sentences covers anyone who served more than 15 years in prison. Having served well over 30 years, Wheeler believes his case should get a second look. So I figure I'm the poster child. I figure my case is going to be able to be held up as an example on why this directive needs to be carried out. Michael Romano served on Gascon's transition team. He currently heads up Governor Newsom's Committee on Revision of the Penal Code. He would, you know, on the face of it, qualify as a person who might be nominated for sense reconsideration. But Romano cautions that the process could take a long time, since Gascon is calling for the review of thousands of cases. Meanwhile, Wheeler's family is trying to call attention to his case. Last fall, family and friends held a rally in front of the Hall of Justice in downtown L.A. Wheeler's sister, Tracy, spoke to reporters. It's ridiculous. And we're here to shed some light, maybe ruffle a few feathers. We want to get some attention because he, he deserves it. I mean, his, he's paid his debt to society. She says only two of Wheeler's 12 siblings are still alive. It's absolutely heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's unbearable, yeah. Wheeler's relatives hope that Gascon's policy will give Wheeler a chance to reunite with what's left of his family. Covering criminal justice, I'm Robert Garova. Tomorrow, Robert explores why the parole board has turned Reginald Wheeler down time and time again over the past three decades. You can hear it here on Take Two. Well, 2021 Oscar nominations are out and... Just looking at the noms, there are a lot more people of color than I have ever seen there. In fact, it's actually one of the most diverse years on record. So how does that happen in a year when movie theaters have been, you know, pretty much closed? KPCC's John Horn has some answers. We hear from him just ahead. Back now to take two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. The 2021 Oscar nominations are officially out. Yes, the nominations for the 93rd Academy Awards were announced early this morning, about two months later than usual, after an extremely unusual year for filmmakers and moviegoers alike. Here's David Rubin, president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, before turning it over to the presenters to announce the nominations. This morning is an annual tradition when we announce the nominations for the Oscars. All the nominees are selected by members of the Academy, 
a diverse community of filmmakers from around the world. Well, this year's Oscar picks happen to be some of the most diverse nominations ever. So to discuss, we turn to KPCC's John Horan. Hey, John. Hey, Austin, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm grand after these nominations. Okay, now, John, let's start off with the official picks and main takeaways. Well, I'm going to start with the movies that weren't nominated for Best Picture because even though it was a really diverse year, there were some movies a lot of people thought were going to get in, all of them led by black cast that were not nominated for Best Picture. That includes The Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and One Night in Miami. That said, and we'll get to the actors, it was a good it was a good day for actors. But the best picture nominees are The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Neutralize him by any means necessary. Mank Minari, or if you want to say it correctly in Korean, Minari, Nomad Land, Promising Young Woman. So if a friend came to you now, came to your house and told you that they thought something bad had happened to them the night before. Cassie. Something bad. It was years ago. What would you say? What would you say? Sound of Metal and the Trial of the Chicago 7. You know, this year's Oscar nominations, they're the most diverse ever, as you mentioned. But how does this year match up against, you know, previous years when it comes to inclusion? And why do you think that is? Well, the bar was set. I don't know if low is the right word. Subterranean. On the floor. Yeah. Yeah, Like somewhere 100 feet below the Earth's surface. Last year, 20 acting nominees, if you count supporting and lead actress and actor, 20 nominees, one non-white performer, Cynthia Erivo from Harriet. And she didn't win. So this year, there were nine actors of color nominated, which is an Oscar record. And if you look closely at director, Nomadland, Chloe Zhao, first person of color ever nominated as a woman to direct. And another director, Emerald Fennell from Promising Young Woman, is in that category. Now, this sounds like not much of a record. Two women were nominated for directing. That's a record. Only one in any other year before and only one winner ever who was a female filmmaker. That was Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker. So, yes, compared to recent history and past history, a lot of progress. You know, we'll see if it's lasting. You know, it's been a couple of years since the Oscars So White hashtag came out, and it really pushed these conversations for change. But now I'm also just a little bit skeptical looking at this because it's like, oh, this is... This is this is pretty good, actually. So I'm wondering, is this because with movie theaters closed for the past year, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences changed one of its fundamental rules by allowing films that didn't play in theaters to compete? Yeah, I think that was a huge deal. I mean, that's like one of the central rules of the Oscars is you have to premiere in a movie theater because that's how you separated like direct-to-video titles, if you remember those, movies that may have played on TV or on HBO or Showtime. So that was a fundamental rule change, that you didn't have to premiere in a theater. You could premiere on a streaming site and still be eligible. And with theaters closed for the past 12 months, the major studios basically avoided releasing films, and it's not like the next James Bond or Fast and Furious movie is going to be a big Oscar frontrunner, <laughs> but it did create a void, and that void was filled by all these streaming movies and also a lot of kind of independently produced movies that might have played at the Sundance Film Festival that got released anyway because there wasn't much content there, and those films tend to be much more diverse in terms of who's behind the camera, who's in front of the camera. You add that to what Netflix and Amazon is producing— 
and you get a very different crop of films that the voters can choose from. I think it's also important, like, yes, the nominations are the honor, but, you know, the wins are what really matter. So it's one thing to nominate a diverse slate of filmmakers and actors. It's another thing to actually give them the trophy. So we'll see what happens come much later this Oscar season at the end of April. We're talking to KPCC's John Horn about this year's Oscar nominations. So given all that, John, I wonder, can we call this very diverse group of nominees in this year progress if the list of movies eligible was not so complete? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think there are two things that are happening. One is, you know, the pandemic has really changed the way that movies are released. And even though we're starting to open up theaters now, I think a lot of people are not going to go back in theaters. And a lot of studios are going to release movies on their new streaming sites because goodness knows everybody has a streaming site now. And the other thing is the Academy has worked very hard to bring in thousands of new members, most of them younger, most of them much more diverse than the old membership. And I think that's getting reflected in these this year's nominees. And remember, as white as the performers were last year, Parasite did win Best Picture, a Korean language film. So that was, I think, an indication of the beginning of the progress. I would hope that this year is kind of a continuation of what the Academy has set in place by expanding its membership to reflect, you know, much more the country than the country club. Well, the date for the 93rd Academy Awards is set for April 25th. What do we know about the ceremony and how it might look this year? I imagine, given everything else that we've seen over the past year, it's going to be a little bit different, right? I would think so. And I don't know if it's going to be kind of closer to what the Emmys did, where you remember there were people in hazmat suits delivering trophies outside of people's homes. I mean, the Grammys are different because they can feature performances. The one thing that the Academy did say this morning, it will be two ceremonies, one from the Kodak Theater in Hollywood, which is the typical site. The other one, Union Station in downtown Los Angeles. So my question is, if people are foregoing their limousines and are going to take the train to Union Station, Amtrak better run on time or it's going to be a very, very long show. (laughs) Very long. That's KPCC's John Horn, who was up very early this morning to get us the 2021 Oscar nominations. Thank you so much, John. My pleasure, Austin. You know, funny story about this song. My wife and I were actually planning a 21st night of September party, and then it was the year 2020, so we couldn't do it. It was like a Saturday. It was perfect and everything. That's it for Take Two today. I'm Austin Cross in this week for A. Martinez as he brings a little L.A. to NPR's Morning Edition. You can catch him mornings this week. I'll be back again with you tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, mask up, and by the way, if you're going to dine out tonight, enjoy your food arriving hot for a change. You deserve something truly crispy. Have a great Monday, everybody. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.